Hello and welcome to the Voice for Choice podcast. I am your host as always, Kevin Curran, and joining me for today's edition is Malin Oud. She is the head of the Stockholm office, director of the China program, and head of economic globalization and human rights thematic area at the Raoul Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law. She's also an advisory board member at the leading German think tank on China, that being Merics. So very much a pleasure to have you here, Malin. Thank you, Kevin. Well, and I want to begin with kind of the breakdown of Olympic boycotts, which have been the major headline leading into the games. Of course, there's a difference between a full boycott, such as the U.S. led in 1980 against the USSR, and diplomatic boycott. I wonder what your take on that is and whether either mode is effective in, in uh, affecting change. Right. So research shows that uh, economic coercion uh, and, and sanctions, boycotts work better the higher the cost they impose uh, on, on the country in question and the more democratic the regime is. Unfortunately, in most cases, it's fairly easy for the target of, of sanctions or boycotts to circumvent them, uh, especially in cases where uh, the, the regime in the country isn't democratic and where it's not vulnerable to economic uh, pressure. And this is, I mean, this is the case uh, uh, of China. And what's worse, uh, sanctions can have uh, counterproductive effects. So there's been some interesting research also into the naming and shaming campaigns against China in, in connection with uh, the Olympics in 2008 that show that uh, they can actually work to uh, strengthen, uh, strengthen the regime and, and sort of rally groups behind the leadership uh, rather than making it easier uh, or, or rather than supporting uh, change and, and human rights advocates. So I, I don't know if you remember, but in 2008 there was a, so in, in 2008 there was a campaign against the Olympics in, in Beijing that was focused on uh, China's role in the uh, in Darfur in Sudan and there was also a campaign focused on the uh, human rights situation in, in Tibet uh, and then China or Chinese uh, citizens responded by by organizing an anti Western media campaign uh, because the, the the shaming of China in relation to to Tibet and uh, Sudan actually ended up uh, creating a lot of patriotic or nationalist feelings in in China and support for the Olympic Games. So, yeah, sanctions are complicated. They're not uh, very effective uh, in most cases, and they can have counterproductive effects, which is why. There's uh, this more newer idea of, of targeted sanctions or diplomatic boycotts, i.e. partial, uh, partial boycotts that main, mainly aims to uh, target of officials, uh, like targeted sanctions uh, on officials because of the situation in, in Xinjiang or in the case of, of the Olympic Games now, uh, some countries will not send uh, official representatives to participate in the opening ceremony, but at the same time want to uh, make it possible for athletes to to participate. So that's that's why we have uh, sort of partial boycotts and and dip diplomatic boycotts in order to avoid counter uh, productive uh, effects. Understood. And 
you know, obviously it's a very different situation since 2008. It seems like there's ever more attention on human rights issues. Uh, but as you said, it's a partial boycott, and that's not just in the sense of diplomatic boycotts, but also uh, where we are, both situated in the EU, there's not a coherent or cohesive policy for uh, taking this type of action. And I wonder what your thoughts are on why there isn't and uh, what that says about certain countries that are taking bolder stances versus those that are, uh, you know, more uh, supportive of the games upcoming. Yeah, I mean, some uh, countries like uh, France have said that they don't think, uh, or uh, the leader of, of, of France has said that he doesn't believe in, in diplomatic boycotts because boycotts aren't effective. And of course, the problem with that is that boycotts and naming and shaming need to be... Uh, coordinated in order to work so uh, but it's it's not been possible to reach a consensus on whether to uh, do even this partial boycott uh, within the EU since some EU countries don't take part in the diplomatic boycott it makes it makes it less effective uh, overall and then there's I mean different levels of diplomatic messaging uh, also uh, in in relation to to the boycott so some Countries don't outright boycott the Olympics, but I think use the COVID perhaps as a as an excuse or a cover to uh, to not travel to Beijing and and then avoid being sort of a part of of very symbolic and ceremonial uh, parts of the Olympics, like the opening ceremony. Um, because yeah, China's relations with most countries in the EU is is very tense at the moment. So I don't think any leaders in the EU want to be seen to uh, support the more ceremonial uh, elements of of the Olympic Games in in Beijing. But what do you make of the people that are leveraging COVID uh, towards non-attendance? It seems like that might please no one. No, I think. On the contrary, I think both China and these countries uh, find COVID to be uh, a rather <laughs> convenient cover. I mean, in order to avoid uh, escalating tensions, because, I mean, China, as soon as uh, uh, the U.S. announced that it was doing uh, a diplomatic boycott of the Olympic Games, China responded by saying, well, you weren't invited in the first place, uh, and also saying that you... Uh, in the U.S., you have COVID anyway, so stay away. Uh, I mean, there's been a, a real escalation in the rhetoric uh, around COVID and around, uh, well, tensions with, with China uh, over the past year. So I think those countries that, including, I, I, I think, the Swedish government that choose not to uh, explicitly say that they're boycotting or, or doing a diplomatic boycott, uh, they also are probably quite relieved that uh, they don't have to uh, state that publicly, but can just refer to the to the COVID situation, which is a very valid reason as well for not not traveling uh, to Beijing. Uh, and I think both China and and Sweden and other countries that choose choose that strategy find it quite useful. No, certainly so. And as you said, maybe less. Uh provocative for the Chinese netizens that are uh, keen to jump on these issues. I do wonder, though, about uh, the backlash for um, some of the uh, 
patriotic buying campaigns or different things that surround uh, some of China's responses, not from a governmental level, but from a citizen level and how things have changed since 2008 with people maybe having outcry about Tibet to now about Xinjiang and the reaction of Chinese, um, the Chinese regular citizen rather than the government itself. Uh, yeah, this this strategy, I mean, was employed uh, back back in 2008 against Carrefour, and and it's been used more and more in in China. In in the past year, there's been a a, a government mobilized or a government organized or a government encouraged boycott uh, against uh, uh, Swedish retailer H&M, uh, Nike, uh, because of supposedly because of their stance on on sourcing cotton from from Xinjiang but uh, that boycott started shortly after the EU uh, sanctioning of four officials uh, on on Xinjiang uh, so it's more likely that it wasn't really about H&M or Nike uh, in in Xinjiang, but rather China's response to to EU sanctions on on officials over over Xinjiang. So, sort of using companies, putting pressure on companies uh, in order to put pressure on on governments. And speaking of government, for you, what's the biggest thing that's changed since 2008 when countries weren't necessarily challenging China ahead of its 2008 summer games and are now uh, calling out China pretty stridently over human rights abuses ahead of the 2022 winter games? Uh, yeah, what to make of that? I, I think, I mean, many countries in, in the EU uh, are concerned about China's more assertive foreign policy. Uh, I think that's a big change uh, if, if you compare the Olympics in 2008 to, uh, to the Olympics now. Big change is that China, on, on the one hand, is, is no longer as vulnerable to uh, pressure uh, from, from the EU and the US on, on human rights. So China's less willing to make concessions. And there's much less incentive also for China to uh, to make concessions that China was willing to make uh, 20 years ago. And then also the West, the EU, the US has much less uh, leverage in relation to China. And China is actually using instead its leverage over uh, Western business uh, in, in China uh, to pressure uh, countries within the EU. So I, I think that has become very apparent in the last couple of years. I think also because human rights used to be, 20 years ago, uh, our concern with human rights in China used to be a concern of uh, for citizens in, in China. But in the last few years, we've also see how, seen how China has an impact on human rights outside China's borders, uh, how how China affects uh, freedom of expression, um, also also here in Europe. So I think that realization has uh, led to a, a shifting or changed policy uh, in, in Europe and much more awareness about China as a, as a challenger uh, when it comes to international norms. So would you say then that the biggest change since 2008 or maybe even further back has been 
China's outreach abroad in terms of human rights uh, norms changing, uh, let's say, more so than its own uh, changes on domestic policy? Or would you say that both are uh, of major concern that augment the reaction to 2022 versus 2008? I mean, if you compare China in the early 2000s to China today, there was more reason to be optimistic about China's political trajectory uh, 20 years ago. Um, there was, China promised, for example, in its bid to host the Olympics uh, in, in 2008, it promised to work towards uh, better human rights protection. And, and promising also f uh, media full freedom uh, to report uh, in China in connection with the Olympics. And on, on um, freedom of information and, and media independence, I think it's really interesting uh, to note that China's actually gone down. Uh, if you compare its place on the World Press Freedom Index in uh, 2008, China then was at place, uh, it was ranking number 167 out of 180 countries. And it's actually gone down 10 places. Uh, so currently China ranks 177 of 180 countries. So it's higher only than Turkmenistan, North Korea and Eritrea. Uh, so, so, of course, then there's a concern that, that the human rights situation, including on, on freedom of information and freedom of expression, has actually deteriorated uh, since the Olympics 2008. But I think the big change is uh, China's more um, assertive foreign policy and sort of reaching out outside uh, China's own borders uh, is, of course, a concern. In, in Europe about uh, the end of, of the one country, uh, two systems in, in Hong Kong and China's suppression of political freedoms in, in Hong Kong. So, yeah, no, I think that's, that's the, big, the big shift uh, and that there's much more awareness now about China's uh, ambitions also to influence international norms and standards in on 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 human rights globally and not just uh, within china and how would you rate their success so far in in influencing international norms changing these norms well china's had some successes uh, it has been successful in preventing resolutions on china's uh, human rights at the UN Human Rights Council. If you remember, even even longer back, uh, in ninety in the early nineteen nineties, just after uh, China's crackdown on demonstrators on Tiananmen, um, China uh, also applied to host the Olympic Games, uh, but was unsuccessful. So I think. China made a bid in 1993 to host the Olympics and then wasn't successful. And that was very much related to, to Tiananmen uh, and China's domestic human rights record. So China's been successful, I think, if, if we look back at the past three decades in, in uh, this creating this counter discourse on, on human rights. I mean, China refers now to 
China's much less defensive in terms of human rights, less vulnerable or less open to accepting critique from other countries or making concessions like releasing political prisoners, which used to be a typical concession China would make 20 or 30 years ago, but no longer does. Um, and, and also in creating this uh, narrative around China's uh, success in protecting human rights and also this recent discourse around uh, democracy, uh, China as uh, a more genuine and effective democracy than the US. Uh, China issued a, a white paper late last year, I think it was in December, in connection with the US summit on, on democracy where China claims to be a, a, a better democracy, basically, than, than liberal democracies in the West, including in, in the US. Um, and then there's, I mean, also in, in this discourse, this, this counter-narrative, uh, China talks about its uh, successful fight against terrorism uh, in, in Xinjiang, its economic successes, uh, so yeah, to to the extent that China's been able to turn the the discourse uh, on on China and also mobilizing its uh, like-minded uh, countries around the world to support uh, China at at the UN uh, at the Human Rights Council. I think yes, China's been. Uh, somewhat successful, but there's also, as as you know, there's also uh, the sort of public opinion towards China in many countries in Europe has turned very negative, uh, including in Sweden. Uh, so it's not exactly been, if you measure China's success in terms of its relationships with many other countries and uh, how people in in Sweden, in um, Germany, in many other countries in Europe, view China and view uh, the human rights situation in China. Uh, it's not been very successful in convincing uh, the rest of the world uh, about uh, China's political system. No, actually, uh, our colleagues over at SEAS in Bratislava actually did a uh, survey and they said that Swedes were among the most negative on China. So, uh, yeah, certainly not the best situation in uh, the country that you're situated in. Uh, of course, a lot of that has to do with China's somewhat caustic uh, diplomacy and you know, Wolf Warrior being the best iteration of that uh, to illustrate kind of corrosive outreach to other countries, let's say. But there is kind of this push that that comes from, and that's, you know, to tell the China story well. And this Olympics comes after the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party at the end of uh, Xi Jinping's second term. And I just wonder how these kind of historical uh, pivot points come to play in, in telling the China story well and making the Olympics kind of a linchpin of these uh, era-defining events for the Chinese uh, Communist Party and its leader. Yeah, no, absolutely. It it does. It comes at a very important point in time. Uh, this... this uh... Saying, I don't know if you've heard it, but a part of this narrative is also around China's suffering of, of 100 years of humiliation at the hands of Western powers and suffering from, from three inflictions uh, where 
Mao Zedong, uh, the three inflictions being uh, starvation, uh, beatings and scolding. Uh, so, so the saying goes or uh, the slogan uh, goes that under Mao Zedong, uh, China solved its uh, problem of suffering from beatings by Western powers. And then under Deng Xiaoping, uh, China solved the problem of, of poverty, of starving. And now under Xi Jinping, China is going to solve uh, the problem of being scolded by other countries, i.e. Uh, China's no longer uh, going to accept being uh, criticized by, by uh, Western powers, by, by the US uh, on, on its uh, human rights record or its political system. So that's what, what Xi Jinping has been emphasizing also uh, ever since, actually since 2008 or 2009, you can see this discourse in academic literature and in uh, party party documents in, in China about China's need to strengthen its discourse power. Uh, that started quite soon after the Olympics in, in 2008. Uh, so Xi Jinping is all about discourse power and uh, the only reason that uh, the West is able to uh, criticize China for uh, human rights is because the West is politicizing human rights uh, and because China is, is lacking in, in global discourse power. The last thing that I want to ask you, though, is about uh, the potential scolding that they could get from individual athletes. You know, athletes are not shy globally to speak about human rights issues or issues of political importance. I wonder if there's any chance that an athlete might have any kind of subtle messaging and what you think China's reaction would be uh, if something like that were to occur. Yeah, I, I think as an athlete, you are, of course, allowed to give. I mean, you're not allowed to make political statements during the competitions or during the award, the medal awards, uh, I, I, if, I've, if I've understood the rules correctly. Uh, but you are allowed to express uh, your opinions during interviews, press conferences. So, and also, I guess one could uh, make subtle points by uh, wearing certain colors and we'll see. Uh, I, I think that that could very well happen. Uh, it won't be broadcasted on TV in China, of course. Uh, so I don't think that message will reach the domestic Chinese uh, public. But I, I don't think, on the other hand, I don't think China's, uh, China can do much to uh, prevent that from happening uh, physically. I mean, they can't do anything to the athletes, but they've already taken a lot of preventive measures. Uh, I mean, there's been uh, warnings uh, that... Uh, athletes or uh, governments shouldn't politicize the Olympics uh, from 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 China's side, uh, and sort of warnings that that will uh, that will be punished. Uh, and we all know. I mean, even if uh, there's no uh, possibility for China to do to to foreign athletes what it can do to to Chinese athletes, like with uh, Peng Shuai, but it can always threaten economic uh, retaliation and pressure, putting pressure on on governments and companies and sports associations that 
their uh, business in, in China will suffer as a consequence of, of individual athletes making statements. Um, so, the, yeah, the famous uh, anaconda in the chandelier that Perry Link wrote about where it's not, uh, there's no clear rules on what you can and cannot say, but everyone knows to, to self-censor. And do you think that athletes are getting that from their home governments as well? We've seen some instructions about, you know, data privacy and data security. Uh, I'm just wondering if there, you know, would be kind of a, hey, we don't want to have any 1968 Mexico City, you know, human rights salutes or anything. Uh, I'm not sure if that's something that the other countries would also probably be warning their athletes about, in your estimation. Yeah, I, I think there's a general atmosphere of, of nervousness that certainly athletes going to uh, China can also uh, sense. And, and because China has uh, retaliated uh, uh, against uh, governments and, and organizations in the past because of just simple expressions of support for uh, demonstrators in Hong Kong, for example, uh, or or what happened to to Nike in Xinjiang and and uh, and H and M uh, because of of sanctions in over Xinjiang last year. I think there is this general uh, atmosphere of nervousness and and let's let's be very cautious and let's not. I mean, also this mantra that comes from the International Olympics Committee about not mixing politics and, and sports is a lot to uh, deal with for, uh, for athletes and, and one can't expect them to be able to deal with all the different nuances uh, of, of China's uh, discourse in that regard. So I think many of them think that better, better safe than sorry. Uh, so they end up perhaps being more cautious than, than they might need to. Okay, very good. Uh, and, and just a, a, you know, a final question here to, to sum up and address the final uh, and fundamental question. Uh, that being uh, how human rights situation could be better addressed uh, if, you know, if boycotts or any of these Olympic actions aren't going to necessarily correct course. I think, I mean, on that, uh, on that point of what could be done, I think you, uh, there is a lot of pressure on the International Olympic Committee in general uh, to produce a, a human rights strategy where it takes those criteria into consideration as well uh, when deciding uh, hosts for for future Olympics. So I think there is change uh, coming as well uh, within the IOC and a realization that this old policy of of sort of keeping politics and and sports separate is is untenable, or at least that maybe human rights can't be simply dismissed as as politics. Uh, just to, I can't resist now. But, uh, you know, obviously that was something that happened with Qatar uh, for FIFA as well, and now with the Olympic Committee. Uh, is that just going to be the norm now that you must consider the human rights uh, angle to sports and it's not something that can be avoided any longer? Yes, it is. It is definitely a, a, a norm that is also reaching into sports. Uh, I mean, it's been since... Uh, since 
a decade back, uh, there are now UN guidelines on business and human rights and, and sports is also a part of, of, of an industry and business need to uh, respect human rights uh, and they need to do human rights due diligence on, on their business operations. So that will apply to IOC as, as a business en entity as well. Uh, going forward. So I, they have decided to uh, appoint a human rights advisory committee uh, led by the former UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. And they, I know they're also working on developing uh, a human rights strategy for the future. Well, we'll see if they can uh, stick to those principles moving forward, uh, and hopefully they do. But again, I really appreciate your time, and hopefully uh, we can catch up uh, sure issues of human rights that I know that you're doing great work on over at the uh, Raoul Wallenberg Institute. Absolutely. Happy to take part in the discussion. Thank you. Bye. For more on this pivotal region's engagement with China, please do visit the Choice website at chinaobservers.eu. Also, consider subscribing to our newsletter, where all of the prescient posts on the Choice platform are distilled down and sent directly to your inbox every month. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, on Twitter at China Observers, and on Facebook at China Observers and Central and Eastern Europe. And as always, remember to make the right choice Join us for our next Voice for Choice podcast.